So good. Well done. Uh, if, if you're new with us, um, that's the way we begin every service, uh, every week. And um, so don't be surprised if you come back next week and see that again. Very fun. Um, you guys, so good to be with you. So good to be together. Um, just even this whole week and getting prepared and, you know, our, our, our band and all the volunteers that have been a part of making this, this service happen, everything else. And all the buildup to Easter has just been so great. And um, I just got to tell you, I'm really excited that you're here. I know there's a lot of places that you could be, and we're honored that you would choose to be here with us um, this morning. Whether it's your first time, um, or if this is your home church, or maybe you haven't been here in a really long time, you know, I, I hope that you catch the, the, the sort of the, t- the tone of Welcome Home, which is, we don't want to ask you really, where, what have you been doing and why haven't you been here in a while? That's not really our intent. Our intent is to say, Welcome Home. We're so, so glad that you decided to join us today. And it is, you know, Easter is like the holiday for the church. You know, a lot of times we talk about uh, Easter and Christmas kind of being the open house for the church where people who aren't too sure about a church kind of go, well, let's go see what they've got going on there. And so um, it is our open house. We're glad that you're with us, whether it's your first time, like I said, or you're, this is your home church, glad that you're here. So we've got a great, we got great stuff today. Let's, um, let's pray and we'll get into it. Um, so let's pray. Jesus, we are, um, we're grateful that um, we get to laugh, that we get to be together we're grateful that um, you would give to us a chance to have a life with you. Father, we're people who, in some respects, um, in many respects, um, Father, need a, a whole new life. Some of us, Jesus, are looking for new hope. Some of us wandered in here looking for something, not sure what it is. We're not sure why we came. Maybe we were dragged here, and, um, but for whatever reason, Father, we know that it's not an accident that we're here. And so, in some small way or in some huge way, Father, would you speak to us? God, would you meet us at the deepest sorrow and at the deepest needs of our life that we might unmistakably know that it's you. And so, Jesus, we give to you a moment in all of whatever else the rest of the day has for us. We give you a moment to just pause for just a few seconds that you might speak to us in the stillness and in the silence. So would you speak to us, Father, the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, in so many ways, we're in need of renovated hearts and redirected lives. We're in need of fresh hope. We're in need of a restart. And Father, might that be evident today in your great love and the power that you display on the cross and in the resurrection. And might that be made real to us today. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, hey, if you want to follow along with the, the message, there's an outline in your bulletin. You can take that out and follow along if you'd like. If you brought your own Bible, we'll be pr- primarily in John chapter 20. Uh, or if you're like, hey, I just want to look at the screen, great. With all the stuff you'll need will be on the screen as well. Um, but while you're getting stuff ready and thinking about whatever, you know, however you want to follow along, uh, let me ask you a question. How many of you guys have, have ever, some of, this is, some of you in this room have done this, you took part in something that is really like, it's like youth public humiliation. It's called cotillion. How many, anybody ever done this? Some of you guys? Yeah, some of you guys did this. Um, for those of you who don't know what cotillion is, cotillion is, it's ba- I guess you could call it like a school, but basically parents who don't love their children send their kids to this, um, <laughs> it's like a, they, they run out of ballroom, you know, and you go and you learn how to like, how to properly eat, you know, sit at a nice table which has four forks and seven spoons, you know, which ones to use at which time, and you know, which, you know, we, at my house, we have at least four spoons every meal, but um, you learn how to do that stuff, and then they, they teach you how to introduce yourself properly. And I remember the, the, the <laughs> some of you may have went to the same place, this, the, um, the people who ran this thing were called the Unanders. Some of you know the Unanders, <laughs> Mrs. and Commander, 
Unander was the, like, the, how the like, other guy went. He was like scratching the records and they're playing the waltz and stuff. Anyway, but anyway, it's this old guy. And the way that you're supposed to introduce yourself is you're supposed to shake Mrs. Unander's hand, but she wants you to like put her hand in a full-on super vice grip as hard as you can. And she's like a grandma. And she, it's like you're supposed to break grandma's brittle little hands. Like you're supposed to go in there and shake her hand. And you're supposed to say your name with a pause. So like Jeff McGuire. Like really clear. And then they teach you how to bow and how to curtsy and how to ask a girl to dance. And they teach you all these useless dances, you know, that they teach you how to waltz, how to walk in a box. This is cleverly called the box step. Pretty much nailed that. Uh, but, you know, there's like all of these dances. And, and the whole, it's at the time in your life, you're probably 11 or 12 years old. And it's a time when all the girls are like a full six or eight inches taller than all the boys. Except for that one guy who started shaving in third grade. He's kind of the king of the whole place, you know. But everybody else just looks like, I mean, it just is so, it's so embarrassing. And the whole time, I mean, they make you walk around and do all these things. And the whole time you're there, especially if you're a guy. You're, you know, if you put your tie on and you're all dressed up. And, of course, nothing lines up exactly right. And it's just, look, you just... It's terrible. The whole time you're wondering, why does this matter? Why does this matter? And your parents are telling you, oh, you're going to need to know how to do the waltz someday. That's not true. It's a lie. You don't need any of this stuff. And it's a, I think for a lot of us, we start looking at, at Cotillion in, in Easter kind of the same way. That we got dressed up. You know, we play a little bit nicer. We introduce, you know, we say hi to grandma and we go do all these things. We go on the road trip and the kids look nice. And, you know, we, we kind of, uh, we comb our hair and, you know, we, we wear our, our, our resurrection pink shirt, you know, and, or the eternal glory of God yellow shirt or whatever it is that we're wearing. And you kind of look at your wife if you're a guy and like, am I pulling the pink shirt off? Can I do this? Yeah, you, you got that. It's fine. It's Easter. You can wear pink. Okay, I'm wearing pink today. And, and there's that, you know, there's that kind of, you eat ham. Is there ever a time in the rest of the year, except maybe Christmas, where you eat ham if it's not on a sandwich? No, you don't. You're thinking about it right now. You haven't had ham any other time except at Easter and Christmas. We eat ham. I mean, we don't. Eat, there's all these weird things we do. And part of us, as we talk about Easter, wonders to ourselves, why does this matter? Is this just merely a tradition that we're kind of a part of? Is there something that we're really doing here? Does this really actually matter at all? And for a lot of us, I, I realize, for a lot of us who are brought here, we're just kind of, you know, we're, we're supposed to go to church. This is where we go. Someone we know goes here and said, yeah, yeah, we'll go. But for, for part of us, there's a major obstacle for us, which is, you know, this, this idea of, this is just really hard to believe this stuff. I mean, you talk about a guy, is, the Easter is a celebration of a guy who was once dead, who is not now, who rose from the grave. That's kind of an absurd deal. I mean, we know dead people are just, they're dead. That's how it works. What we do believe about Jesus, almost everybody generally believes, that he's a guy who was a good teacher. We believe he's compassionate. We believe he advocated for the poor. We believe he was just. We believe that he was courageous. We believe there's some inexplicable, miraculous things that may have been attributed to him. Perhaps some of us believe that. Maybe we believe that he's just. But we don't, we really don't believe much more than that for a lot of us. Let me just tell you, you are in really good company. It turns out that the people who walk with Jesus, these 12 or so inner group of his disciples, along with some of the other people that are with him, didn't believe that a dead guy could rise from the grave either. They didn't believe it. So check this out. This is John chapter 20. This is the, the resurrection story. Jesus has been crucified. He's been buried. And, and you know, three days later, here's what's happening. John 20, verse 1, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, 
Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Let me stop right there just for a moment. Now, there is the, the gospel writer, the guy who writes this book about Jesus' life and ministry, is a guy named John. He almost always refers to himself by that title, the one Jesus loved. Now, it says, I mean, he doesn't, these guys don't know when they're writing this stuff how big these books are going to be. But he wants, it, he wants to be immortalized as the one Jesus loved. There's 12 guys, but the one he loved, that was me. I'm not going to say who it was, but I'm just going to anonymously say it's the one Jesus loved. You guys can figure it out, okay? So, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. See, she starts running to the tomb. She says, we've been here, and now we don't, we, we, we've seen the tomb, and there's nobody there. And her first assumption isn't, he's risen. Her first assumption is, oh my gosh, I came here to redress the wounds or whatever else it is to make sure that he's embalmed properly for burial, and he's gone. And her first reaction is, we don't know where they put him. We don't know what happened to him. Now, what's amazing is that the disciples were told this was going to happen a bunch of times leading up into this, this, you know, this time during, you know, during Easter. They were told this was going to happen. I, I put a couple of these instances on your, on your outline. You can just look at them real quickly. Here's a couple of them. Uh, Matthew 26 is this, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Matthew's account of the resurrection actually has angels telling the disciples, remember, he told you guys he was going to meet you in Galilee when they go to the empty tomb. Uh, in Mark 8, 31, he told them that the Son of Man, Son of Man's a title Jesus uses for himself. He told them that the Son of Man must be killed and after, uh, and after three days rise again. Now remember, he's telling these guys, this is the plan. This is what's going to happen. Mark 9, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves discussing what risen from the dead meant. The disciples were like, he said risen from the dead. We have no idea what that means. I don't. He said, he keeps talking about what, they have no idea, right? Uh, verse, uh, John chapter 16. What does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? We don't understand what he's saying. These are the guys who walked with Jesus. They saw him walk on water. They saw him do all these things, and they're like, we don't get it. You keep talking about rising from the grave. I'm sorry, can you say that? Speak slower. Like, they just don't understand what he's saying the whole time. Now, back to the, this, the scripture here. Verse 3, so Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, <laughs> but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. <laughs> now, as if being the one known as the disciple Jesus loved wasn't enough, John has this verse in his gospel account, which I don't really know why it's there except for John just to go, you know, I'm faster than old Peter. That's all it is. That's all that there is. You know, like Peter may got it. Peter is a name that means rock. Like, hey, he gets a new name, rock. That's pretty cool. <laughs> Rocks aren't fast. John's fast. I'm fast. Forever, I want everybody to know, when we go to the empty tomb, I was faster than Peter. That's all. That's the reason why that's there. I don't know why that's there, but there it is. But the other disciple out outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, 
who had reached the tomb first. In case there's any doubt about who got there first, once again, let's reiterate, I'm faster than Peter. Also went inside, he saw and believed. So you have these people running in kind of hysteria, one of them faster than the other, who get to the, get to the tomb and they realize there's no body there. Something has gone on. John, it says, you know, you look in the, if you were to read this, you know, with more detail, we have more time. You could look at the themes here that there's lots of repetition of words like sight and saw and knew and understood and believed. Some of the translations, Greek translations, have things like beheld, that they saw or they beheld something, they understood something, or they noticed things. And throughout the whole interchange of what's happening with this empty tomb, people are seeing things. Sometimes they're not seeing things that are right in front of them. And then it says that John saw and believed. Now, the scholars have debate about what John actually believed. Some say he, at that moment, believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. Like he remembered all of a sudden, oh yeah, Jesus has been saying this, which nobody else really remembered. Some say that he just, he, you know, he really did not believe Mary because she was a woman. This is, you know, the time women don't even have, their, their testimony isn't allowed in court even. So maybe it's that he's kind of got this anti-woman thing. Oh, maybe that's it. But it seems that he saw and believed just that the body wasn't there. It's like if someone tells you something so miraculous, whether or not you trust the source, you're going to want to go and see it for yourself. So John runs to the tomb, acknowledges now that he's seen that the body isn't there. He doesn't fully understand what's happening because of the next verse, verse 9, which reads this. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. At this point, three people who are a part of Jesus' inner circle do not believe yet that he has resurrected. All they believe is that he's not there. They don't yet believe, oh my gosh, remember when Jesus said this? All of the people that were around Jesus at the crucifixion that watched or saw, they either scattered because they were afraid. None of them stood around the resurrection and went, we know this is bad, but this is just the beginning. We know it's happening. Day three, party time. None of them said that. Everybody here now is going, he's just not here. We don't know what happened. You see, John, like everybody else, believed that there was an empty tomb and that Jesus wasn't there. That's all they could see, but that doesn't... They don't really get it. What all the disciples believed when they saw Jesus die, it was what all people believed when they saw people hang on crosses. That in this instance, a, 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 a typical Roman, Roman way of dealing with revolutionaries and revolutionary leaders and quote-unquote would-be messiahs was, was taken, which kind of took place. Between the year 50 B.C. and the year 50 A.D., about 10 or 12 people who called themselves or were called messiahs started these little revolutions. And the way Rome dealt with those people and their revolutions was this. They found these revolutionary people. They took the leader, the Messiah. They put that person on a cross, publicly executed that person, and then watched as the people who followed that revolutionary leader, this Messiah, dispersed. That's what they always did. Because everybody knew in the ancient world, a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. Everybody knew that. And the disciples believed the same thing. Well, our guys die. Our guy's dead. We, we saw him just like all the other people who thought they were the Messiah. He's, he's dead. They all believe in this failure. But there's only one record in the history of all of this time in which one public execution of a Messiah didn't result in the, like, the dissolving of all of his followers and the stop of that revolutionary progress. And that is in the people 
who belong to this group of people called the followers of Jesus or the disciples, these people continue to have their revolution in some capacity, this sort of anti-Caesar kind of revolution, which means something had to have happened. At this point, the disciples are still in disbelief, but something must have happened, blowing away conventional explanations because by all accounts, this whole revolutionary work of Jesus should have stopped right there. Verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot, and they asked her, Woman, why are you crying? As if she needs to tell them. I mean, there's, there's, she's overwhelmed with sadness. She's, you know, no one in this story yet, remember, believes in a resurrected Jesus. Now she's having a conversation with two angels. Something has to be up. That might have sparked her memory. It says there, there's the angels talking to her. And she doesn't really have any realization. She just has tears. She still believes someone has stolen this body. Verse 14, another figure appears in this tomb. They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. So she's in a total, she's in a moment of complete grief. We don't know what they've done with this person who has respected me, who has, who has taken me in as part of this group of people. We don't know what they've done with him. The angels ask her, and she doesn't acknowledge that they're angels. She just, she's just having a conversation with them. And then a third person appears. It's Jesus, and she doesn't recognize him. I think for a lot of us, however it is that we came into this place, whatever it is that brought us here, whether we were mistaken, whether we thought we were going to see a matinee at an old movie theater, or we were on our way to the hospital and got lost and thought this was a lobby with a loud live band, or whatever it might have been, for a lot of us in our deepest grief, what is often surprising when you talk to people after in retrospect, what they'll say is, I didn't realize in the most deep, painful moments of my life, Jesus was right there, and I didn't recognize him. For some of you, Jesus is right there. And maybe you're just not able to recognize him. Maybe the circumstances in your life are just too dire. Maybe things have come up that have somehow obscured your ability to see things that are otherwise good, and God is right there. Jesus is right there. And maybe you can't recognize him. Mary's in the same place. Verse 15 says this. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Which, of course, she's like, how many people do I have to explain this to, right? Why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him, and I'll go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. See, Mary, after she's seen angels, she's seen the empty tomb, she's now seen Jesus and not recognized him, and it's at the moment when he calls her name that everything starts to switch for her. You see, Mary has a reputation. Mary is universally known in the Bible as the person who was possessed by seven demons. And after an encounter with Jesus, those seven demons were no longer plaguing her, but before then she was just Mary plagued by seven demons. That's how she was known. Some traditions have Mary also being known as a prostitute. 
that here's this person who has all these other identities. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, Mary, who once had seven demons possessing her. He doesn't say that. He just says her name. For a lot of us, our identity is wrapped up in a lot of things. We have a lot of fear about how we're perceived. We have a story that attaches to our own name. And we're unsure how we're known. And Jesus, who is standing right there, doesn't call you by the name by which you have been shamed. He doesn't call you by that past which you have been known for. He calls you by your name. For her, in this moment, it is the one thing that snaps her to the reality of what's actually happening. It isn't the angels. It isn't that there isn't a body there. It's that Jesus himself calls her by name. It turns out most of us are scared. At the soul level, we are people who are longing to be known. We want our name to be called, not just our reputation. There's something within us at the soul level that says, I need beyond what I can explain. I need something that's part of, beyond whatever this world has got. I need something something there. And here's Jesus who looks at a woman who has seen the worst of the world. And he says, I know you. You're Mary." You're Mary. You know, there's this crazy thing that Christians believe. There's a lot of crazy things Christians believe. But one of them is that that inner longing that's deep within our own soul, this need to be known, to be validated, to be, to be given dignity by something, has something to do with Jesus. In fact, when we talk about people and their own encounter with Jesus in our own relation, in, in, you know, even as part of our church, People talk about, there's something that happened to me that when I started to realize that he knew me and I began to move toward him. We have story after story of people understanding this and coming to grips with this reality. And I want you to catch a glimpse. Just there's three brief stories of people meeting Jesus in a place where he begins to meet their deepest need. Check this out. I carried a lot of wreckage my whole life. A lot of things I've done, which I have been proud of, and I've had every desire ever filled in my life, plus more, and it always made me feel so empty. So anxiety and depression, I've been dealing with since I was 19. That was my first panic attack. Many times I'd get down on my knees and try to pray to God, but um, I just felt like he wasn't listening. When I was 19, my whole world was turned upside down. I went on one date. We made one bad choice and ended up pregnant at 19. I was in such a devastating, horrible place. I um, couldn't even pray to God because I didn't feel like I was worthy. I couldn't even pray to him to help me through. I was in the darkest place I've ever been. I would come home at night. I would lay down on my bed and just feel so empty and feel so alone. And the cycle continued over and over. I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I'm destroying my whole family's reputation. Everyone knows us as this perfect Christian family involved in the church. And I mean, now I'm the one messing that all, all up. I was really terrified of not going to church because if they knew who I really was, they would not let me in. So I was invited to Mariners and I figured, what the heck, I didn't have anything to lose. And I was in such a dark place and feeling so much shame. I just, I came in because I was, was trying to get someone off my back. And I had no intentions of even staying at church. When I sat at church for the first time, um, 
I felt at peace. I felt warm. I don't know what the pastor was talking about that day. I don't know what message. But he stood up in front of every person in church and admitted he wasn't perfect. He admitted that he had faults and flaws. It just went straight to my heart. It's like God was just speaking straight to me that um, I didn't have to be perfect. He just loved me because I'm his kid. All my striving to be the perfect mom, the perfect daughter, the perfect wife, to raise perfect kids, to be the perfect friend, all of it was that I felt like in some way I could make up for all the pain that I had caused my loved ones. I just remember crying out to God and begging Him to free me from that weight. I just, I could not carry it anymore. I got on my knees and I asked God for help. And a lot of the pain and the suffering that I've carried was able to be released. It's great to know that I can be filled not with those desires, but to be filled with God. I felt like I was in bondage because of my anxiety and my depression and alcohol use. And God freed me of that. Now I have this picture of myself sharing my story and I'm sharing hope and I don't feel the shame. I've been looking to be whole my whole life with some type of thing to make me feel complete. And I don't have to do that anymore. There's nothing that can replace the power of God. See, hey, you can clap. See, if you've been with us before, you probably heard us say in some capacity, someone say something along these lines, that you know, we're a group of people who are trying to figure out what it looks like to follow Jesus, how to love other people. We don't have all the answers. There's not a single person in this room who has every answer. None of us does any of this perfectly. Most of us are pretty good at kind of managing an appearance. Most of us do that. But we believe something. Jesus spoke about his, he spoke more than anything else, he spoke about something called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And maybe you're familiar if you grew up in certain traditions where you've, you've said the Lord's Prayer, sometimes called the Our Father. There's a, there's, a, there's a line in the prayer which is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, what that saying is that in some way, whatever, whatever way things are done in, your, in, in heaven, God, we want that way done here. We want the will of heaven and the way of heaven, the purposes of heaven, to crash into the earth and to do something in our own lives. These stories are an example of God's heaven breaking into people's ordinary, regular lives, people who are just like you and me, who do not have everything together. We may have our act together, but that's about all it is. And yet you see Jesus at work doing something, and the earliest Christians believed there was something about this new life with Jesus. They believed crazy stuff about that. They didn't just believe that someday they were going to go to heaven when they died, although that's there. What they actually believed was that right now God's kingdom stuff, whatever that is, could come down and do something in people's hearts and their lives. They actually believed that. You see, the resurrection and wasn't just simply a really good thing for Jesus. It was that the people in the early church began to realize this has, this has some profound implications for people who belong to Jesus. John 20, verse 19. On the end of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Now, they do not know what has happened. 
The disciples are like, the body's gone, and we're going to get blamed for that. We're going to get blamed that someone stole it. They're going to, the, the Jewish leaders are going to say, look, look, the disciples stole the body. Rome, get in there and take them. Because there's, I'm going to show you, here's just an ordinance, a, a, a law passed by Caesar, which says this. For beyond all else, it shall be obligatory to honor those who have been buried. Let no one remove them for any reason. If anyone does so, however, it is my will, meaning Caesar's will, that he shall suffer capital punishment on the charge of tomb robbery. The disciples are afraid. Someone's going to say, hey, they stole a body, and then they're all going to be killed. They don't yet believe what's actually happened, has happened. Keep on reading. Verse 19 again. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In some translations of the Bible, it says, uh, he showed them his hands and his side. Therefore, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You have this, this Jesus who up until this moment, the disciples have believed that he has been stolen and that they're about to get in huge trouble. And now he's standing in their midst and he says, peace be with you. And it And it's only at the moment when he says, check out the wounds, these are for real, that they go, oh my gosh, that's Jesus. Somehow or another, when they realize at some moment that Jesus understands and knows pain is when they go, that's our guy. He's not a ghost. He's got real wounds. He's actually showing up. He's got this new, there's something new about him, clearly, but he's still got these wounds. It's like a newer version of him. It's like, a. how do we explain this? They don't know how to explain. He's showing up behind locked doors. You know, it's even the, the, next, the next chapter in John. Jesus is having breakfast. And he's, you know, he's appearing to people and he's having breakfast, which means he's not just a spirit who rose. He's a full body. I don't think... Spirits need to eat the most important meal of the day, right? There's Jesus eating breakfast. You see, there's something else. For something to be resurrected, it has to be fully dead. It has to come back to life. And there's this sense about what Jesus is, what happened to Jesus is that he's not just resuscitated. My friend, who's a physician's assistant, she's shopping at Costco one time, and a guy has a heart attack, falls over right next to her. And the Costco people all panicked. They're like, are we allowed to touch him? Well, we could sue him. I mean, it was like they all stopped. No one did anything. So my friend, she, she gives this, uh, this man CPR, saves his life, rescues him, brings him back to life. He's not a resurrected person. He's a resuscitated person. In a resuscitated life, people are placed back to the conditions immediately preceding their death. So if this guy had clogged arteries or he had a stroke, whatever, all of those conditions are still there. He's barely hanging on. You see, when the, when the people, belong, people who belong to Jesus believed simply that he was, Jesus wasn't resuscitated, but that he was resurrected, and that somehow that same resurrection kind of life is available to us. You know, because it's a resurrection that we need. For a lot of us in our lives, we kind of walk through the idea of just having a resuscitated life and we think that's that's a resurrection you see a resuscitated life is just barely keeping things going it's one more breath it's barely making it through one more day people who live resuscitated lives wear a lot of veneers they're very good at keeping an act an outward appearance these are people who wear masks who run who hide 
who are the victim, who victimize other people. These are people who are saying, this is the best it can get, just that I barely make it to the next day. For me, my own life. There's a part of me in my life, maybe you can connect to this idea, which says, the best I can do is wear a veneer. And that veneer that I usually wear, this covering over everything else, is generally based in my ability to compare myself with other people. And it just kind of keeps me barely taking another breath where I can go, I'm, I'm better than that person. Oh no, that person's better than me. I better do something. Whatever it might be, how they are as a parent, what they look like, how successful they are in whatever it is that they're doing, how their kids do. These are all things that just barely, that I live in that world trying to keep myself feeling like I'm just going to make it to the next day if I could just be a little bit better than them. Maybe that's you. Maybe there's a part of you that's going, I'm living kind of a, a, a resuscitated life. And maybe what I really need in my life isn't merely just another day of sort of wandering through, figuring out, trying to find. Maybe there's something else in my life that really needs not just a little resuscitation, but it needs a whole life renovation. The early church believed this insane thing about Jesus. It says this in Romans 8. This is the Apostle Paul who writes to the church in Rome. He says, "If, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. In other words, whatever power that raised Jesus from the dead, whatever that is, the Holy Spirit, will live in people who belong to Jesus and give to them that same kind of resurrected life. People talk about, when they talk about walking with Jesus, about things, they use words like freedom, lightness, a release, something about releasing burdens. They talk about a new humility, an openness, a receptivity to God. It's because of this kind of stuff. That's resurrection kind of life. Where in your life are you settling for resuscitation when you need a resurrection? Where in your life do you just go, it's fine if I just make it through another day in my marriage, in my job, in my family, in my secrets, in my addictions? Where do you just go, I'm settling for resuscitation and I need a resurrection? See, Easter matters. Easter is not just cotillion because our whole lives can be resurrected. Not only in the future, but right now in the present the most painful stuff of our lives can be resurrected, not merely resuscitated. That's Easter. Let's pray together. Jesus, we are a group of people who settle so often for resuscitation. It's what the world tries to sell us. It's what we believe in some cases about ourselves. That's all we can handle. Father, we know that way down deep that the only way we get a life, a full life, a resurrected kind of life is if we let go of trying to resuscitate things that ought to be dead, that need a whole new renovation. Jesus, as we sing songs, as we respond to you in prayer and in these songs, would you hear people who are longing for resurrection, 
Would you, Father, hear our prayer for our own resurrection as it follows suit with yours? Jesus, we believe in things that are crazy to believe because they're the only possible explanation. Jesus, help us to see as we sing and as we pray that as absurd as it might be, you have risen from the dead to give to us life in the power of your Holy Spirit. Jesus, would you continue to hear our prayers as we sing in your name. Amen.